Welcome to Traders Horizon, a podcast produced by Active Trades and presented by myself, Ricardo Evangelista. We invite guests with fascinating views to share and remarkable stories to tell. Our conversations, during which we always look for insightful trading ideas, cover a range of topics, including the financial markets, economics, geopolitics, entrepreneurship, and more. Last week, we spoke to Paul Craig, an economic and political strategist who believes that it is time to admit that Milton Friedman was wrong and that this inflation, rather than inflation, is structural. I truly enjoyed my conversation with Paul and found his views on China and Chinese assets to be very insightful and thought-provoking. This week's guest is Alessandro Antonioli, who is driving BP's ambition to build a portfolio of 50 gigawatts of renewable energy by 2030. Before his current role as Senior Manager of Renewables Growth, he worked in merger and acquisitions, crude oil trading and, as an engineer, designed various power plants across Europe. Alessandro is the founder of Advance, a company with leading technology to convert waste into energy, and he holds a Master in Structural Engineering from Sapienza, University of Rome, and an MBA from INSEAD Business School. Welcome to Traders Horizon, a podcast produced by Active Trades and presented by Ricardo Evangelista. Alessandro, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ricardo. Thank you for having me at your podcast. Alessandro, in late June, early July, um, some analysts predicted that oil prices could go back to $100 and even more uh, a barrel in the not-too-distant future. What are your views on this? Well, I think this is uh, a prediction that actually is reasonable in many ways. Um, I think because, first of all, they were predicting that there would be uh, a rebound from the current condition. So we are coming from uh, uh, a time of excess supply and very scarce demand. So many uh, refineries might find their, their stock very low and they need, they need to replenish it in a, in a pretty short amount of time to react to the restart of the operations, restart of traveling of people. I think what has limited that prediction is that um, effectively the COVID problem is not completely disappeared. Uh, it is patchy. Uh, it happens in different, it, it's been dealt with in different ways in different parts of the world. Uh, and this is somehow uh, capping the, the enthusiasm uh, of some investors and also the, um, the, the, the replenishment of stock for many operators. Um, however, we see that the oil price is now at the sustained level uh, as, the, as the world is getting back to normality and we see that level to be sustained and by fundamentals in the, in the medium long term uh, as activities reopen. I think that another observation is probably a lot of the initial uh, hype on, on oil prices has been fueled by 
some financial investors who want to take advantage of mm-hmm. uh, the reflationary trade uh, and, and, and therefore they, they started to uh, pile some some cash on the on the commodity, uh, but still I think if you look just at the fundamentals, it makes sense to think that uh, as everyone gets back to work and and the world gets back to normal, there would be increasing demand for uh, for hydrocarbons. Yes, and also some some observers and analysts pointed out that um, during the peak of the pandemic, um, demand for oil dropped abruptly uh, and so and so prices dropped as well obviously and, and that uh, rendered some some exploration say for example shale in the US many of them were no longer viable economically uh, so that may be another factor supporting uh, oil prices now uh, that's demand is uh, is returning to to normal levels uh, would you agree with that I, I don't think it's going to be supporting the price in the, in the short term. Uh, I think because the supply is still um, outpacing the demand materially uh, in today's world. Uh, I think that's about, uh, I mean, COVID times has been probably we're, we're talking 20 million barrels in excess of demand. I think in normal times, probably we are probably a few millions in excess of demand. I think, however, it's, it's understandable to think that over time, uh, as the oil companies would not be replenishing their reserves, there could be uh, a potential uh, supply shortage that might push the oil price uh, high for a, for a certain period of time. Now, how much that period of time is going to last, it depends on how the world will, will have moved since then, how alternative sources of energy will have been uh, developed, what will be the incentive placed by the government, and, and also depends obviously on the, on the demand side. Uh, that uh, I think it, it's hard to predict as of, as of now. Hmm. I mean, some 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 projections um, suggest that global oil demand could peak by 2025. Um, I've heard others um, that expect demand to continue to grow until 2040. Um, in your opinion, uh, which uh, which date is the m- most plausible one? I think that global oil demand um, uh, will peak uh, when I think we will start to see um, new f- new form new forms of energy being uh, deployed, and that it will require inevitably more energy. Um, uh, it will also peak when. Um, there will be uh, the middle class in certain developing countries will start to demand uh, more tr- transportation means, more eating. They will um, increase their uh, per, per capita GDP. Now, trying to forecast when that's going to happen, I think probably it's more likely to happen in the in 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 the 30s than in than in the 20s. That's my that's my very personal uh, view. Um, since I mean the world population. Um, is not decreasing at the moment, uh, since mm. you know there is a lot of there is many areas of in the world um, that are still in poverty that will uh, have their middle class emerging. Uh, and together with that, I think a good observation is that as we deploy new technologies, these new technologies will still require hydrocarbons um, in order to um, to work. And I'm thinking of hydrogen, for example. Hydrogen production is one good example of this. Uh, and I'm thinking also about um, offsetting the cyclicality of some renewable energy. So I think in the startup, 
there will be a big demand, uh, a, a, a temporary increase in demand for for those uh, for hydrocarbons. I think as a proof of that, we have seen what happened in Germany when they decided to shift uh, from nuclear to renewables. Effectively, the consumption of coal is increased dramatically until mm. when, and I think it's still probably uh, higher than when it was b before the nuclear, the, nu um, the decision to exit nuclear a few years ago, and, and, and it's still increasing in the country, and it will keep increasing uh, until when you have uh, gas uh, able to replace uh, coal, and, 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 and it, that, that will happen probably in, in a few years down the line. Mm. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting you say that that um, the transition from um, fossil fuels to renewables or or to alternative fuels um, is likely to, in the medium, in the short to medium term, actually to drive um, an increase in demand for for fossil fuels. So um, a few a few weeks ago, I I read a prediction by Goldman Sachs. Uh, which stated something like for every two trillion dollars spent on green projects, oil demand will increase by 200,000 barrels per day. Uh, do you think this is, this is realistic? I mean, is it, is it fair to, to paint this picture that plans to reboot the economy through green uh, infrastructure projects will um, end up driving an increase in demand for for fossil fuels. Is it is it a fair prediction there by Goldman Sachs or? I, I think it's a, I nonsense? think it's an interesting it's an interesting view um, and and I think it does it deserves some credit. Uh, if you look at the energy system globally, uh, now you still have hydrocarbon that um, accounts for a big share, probably about fifty percent of the share of. Um, of energy production uh, in the world, and the rest is divided across, you know, other, um, uh, you have coal and, and, and you have renewables and, and so on. Uh, now, as you want to reduce that section of hydrocarbons and coal, and you want to replace it with renewables, uh, you definitely need to go through a sensible transition because uh, you don't want the, the world to go through any energy or, econom or economic shock uh, by doing that. And if you want to be, um, if, if you want to transition the world into a cleaner um, state uh, where you have some uh, forms of energy that, are, that have a lesser impact on the, on the environment, what governments will have to do is they will have um, to allow for hydrocarbons to complement renewable energy for the foreseeable future until when you will have a technology that will be able to address the inevitable energy shortages that you have if you rely on intermittent power. So uh, what I mean is that, for example, if you have uh, wind blades that spin only when uh, the wind is blowing, mm -hmm. uh, definitely you will need hydrocarbons or some other forms of energy that will be able to provide um, power to the users uh, for the remaining hours uh, of the day. Now, uh, in the short term, there isn't magic trick for making that happen. Um, without um, without having some some impact on uh, on the environment, um, there are, however, many technologies that are being studied now for trying to store the electricity 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 that is generated in the um, in the hours of the day when um, there is excess production versus demand that can be released um, in the remaining part of the day. This requires 
if you want if you want to achieve uh, full carbon neutrality for your uh, power generation, uh, what you need is necessarily uh, an improvement in the in in the store in the storage technology. New you need a new generation of of battery. Um, in the medium term, what you can do is to reduce the carbon intensity of the hydrocarbons uh, that you need for um, for complementing renewable energy. In this sense, uh, we see a lot of progress that's being done by uh, carbon capturing and um, and the energy companies are investing a lot together with the governments uh, into schemes like the T-side one in the UK, uh, where mm. new technologies are experimented in a, in a, in a, in a complete energy uh, system where you have uh, renewables, where you where, where you have uh, battery storage, where you have carbon carbon capturing, where you have gas uh, complementing the the cyclicality of renewable energy. So, going back to the prediction that there could be an increase of um, consumption of hydrocarbons in the medium term, I I agree. Like if you look at this picture um, uh, that I just try tried to paint. You might have an increase in uh, hydrocarbon requirement, but you might have effectively a lower impact on the environment because mm. of carbon capturing and because of uh, the storage technology that um, will be increasingly employed. Mm. And I mean, so at the end, what happened to uh, what happened to citizens is not, and to the consumers is not really, you know, what's the production of hydrocarbons? We have plenty of resources at the moment in hydrocarbons that can still be exploited um, uh, without without additional need for drilling or exploration. What matters to the final users is what is the impact, the environmental and social impact of uh, of my energy consumption, and that's definitely what uh, all energy companies are trying to mitigate and reduce over time. And and um, I assume that that mitigation is done through, for for example, planting forests. Um, what other what other schemes are there um, that that um, that are uh, widely used? So I think that's the, um, offsetting carbon uh, is definitely the the easiest way uh, to reduce the, your carbon uh, footprint. Uh, we think, however, it's not a long-term solution um, because effectively you're not reducing your carbon emission. You're effectively saying, I'm I'm increasing the potential for um, the, for the uh, environment to regenerate by um, capturing more carbon. Um, however, you still are emitting carbon while you, you, you produce. So I think the, the, the first step is actually to try to reduce um, the emissions from production. Uh, so that means mostly it's methane. Uh, that is a very mm -hmm. dangerous greenhouse greenhouse gas that however st stays in the atmosphere for much uh, for much shorter time than than carbon dioxide so there's a lot of focus on re on controlling methane emission uh, in the operations then um, and, and production of course then the other stage is um, to start uh, shifting the the source of energy from hydrocarbons into cleaner technologies is what we uh, we discussed before and you know, I think here it's difficult to think that we'll move straight away from carbon-intense, uh, carbon-intense uh, basket uh, to have zero zero carbon or z zero greenhouse gases basket without having that energy transition that requires other forms of energy to come into the equation, and and we'll have to move from higher carbon-intensity hydrocarbons like uh, oil 
into less carbon intensity hydrocarbons like, like uh, gas uh, and then move gradually um, into having hydrogen uh, but this will still take some time you know to become economically viable and to be completely green hydrogen um, i think it's it's worth mentioning that hydrogen uh, alone is not the solution right now just because if we look at the way uh, hydrogen mm -hmm. uh, is produced um, uh, if, uh, uh, well it, uh, it is it is done um, in a way that is still um, uh, there still has an impact on the on the on the atmosphere on, on the atmosphere um, yes. while green hydrogen is much is much cleaner but requires significant investment it's 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 it is very expensive uh, and requires renewable energy to be developed at, at scale mm -hmm. I mean you mentioned um, you also mentioned uh, methane there and of course methane uh, results or the emission of methane results not just from the burning of uh, of uh, fuel but also from uh, meat production for example and and from the way um, from the way we live from our lifestyle so um, i think the the efforts to to control uh, global warming, which I suppose is the it's the long term objective uh, of all this, uh, will pass through not just uh, new ways of uh, developing new ways of generating energy, but also uh, by all of us uh, changing our lifestyle uh, and and uh, and uh, adapting to new ways of living, cleaner ways of living, and more sustainable ways as well. Um, something else that uh, I've been quite interested as, uh, as someone who, who was who was involved in the in the financial markets is um, carbon carbon licenses. You know the the, the these schemes that the EU has and uh, um, the UK since Brexit adopted their own and and there's others too. Um, what are, what are your views on this? I mean, is this something that can have uh, a positive impact and and also how how are this this carbon licenses uh processes uh being assimilated and dealt with by by big oil for example who i suppose will will need a few of those carbon licenses I think it's a very good idea, and I think um, I think it's one of the things where Europe has been really uh, leading the way into decarbonization. So the carbon credit market is a market that is very active today. So it wasn't as as this a few years ago. I think it's become increasingly liquid. Um, it has been a bit flat, I'd say, uh, from the launch for a few years, but now I think it's becoming a, much more interesting. It, it it attracts much more the um, the interest of, uh, of of market operators, and that's for me, it's a good way of allowing um, the market to find a solution for its for its carbon problem by itself. Uh, giving a price to carbon intensity is definitely something that. Uh, helps to make investment decisions and guide the, the, the decisions of investors and operators. The four, just to make an example, when you decide if you want to do uh, a power to gas uh, project versus you want to do a coal, um, sorry, gas to power versus, versus uh, against a coal to power project, obviously you need to keep in mind that it's not just the cost of the raw material you have to pay for, but then there is a cost of carbon credits that you need to account for. And given where the curve of the carbon credits is going, uh, 
you tend to be very conservative and you price it, you know, in, uh, maybe in the region of, you know, it could be $100 per ton or, or even more in the in the next day. So I think it's, it's incredibly powerful uh, as a tool. The only problem is that obviously it's not consistent across the globe. So uh, these actually still allow some uh, geographical arbitrage uh, and might actually redirect the, the investment decisions of some operators in some other areas where this is less regulated. Um, but I think as a principle, if it's, if it's applied uh, in transparent, clear way uh, across the world, uh, and it implies uh, that there are similar social uh, standards uh, underpinning that, 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 that economic environment, then I think it's extremely powerful tool and, and big, com big, big companies, big energy companies are strongly supportive of it. Um, they embrace it and they actually find that, you know, we can do good for the environment and we can do also good business in the, in the carbon trading market for our investors. Horizon, a podcast by Active Trades with Ricardo Evangelista. mentioned the you know the the fact that some countries may not have some schemes and that and therefore they may end up gaining some unfair advantage over over others that uh, that adopt it and uh, that's why there's been also some talk recently about uh, the so-called uh, carbon carbon tax uh, which would um, serve as a way to level the playing field for so that countries that don't have such schemes would not be able to offer that uh, benefits to industries uh, based in those countries uh, by, be, because they would then end up being taxed uh, if they were to export anything to to countries where the schemes are um, are in place but I do agree with you that uh, it is it is definitely a step uh, towards the right direction. The, it can have a positive uh, social uh, impact and and uh, environmental impact, of course. And, and that's not something that uh, usually is associated with a, with the financial market. So, so uh, <laughs> worth worth mentioning there. Um, Alessandro, um, you, you're involved now, now focusing more on your role at BP, uh, you're involved in BP's effort to, to build uh, a portfolio uh, of uh, 50 gigawatts of renewable energy by 2030. I mean, this is a, an incredible amount of, uh, of energy. I, I can't even uh, figure it out how much it is, I mean, but maybe you can tell me. Um, can you tell us more about this and uh, and how and how how you guys are planning to to get this done? Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. It's a big amount of energy. Um, it 
corresponds pretty much to the demand of a big industrialized country the size of, of the UK. Um, and it is, uh, it is a big amount. Uh, and, and we tend to ad uh, address the problem, however, not just from um, a numerical perspective and think, well, we need to do this. I think this is a target that comes together with other um, many targets that um, the company has set for itself. Uh, it's around various sustainability aims that um, are linked to getting net zero carbon emission in operations, uh, but also halving the intensity of our, um, halving the carbon intensity of our product products, reducing the methane uh, from our operations. But it also comes with um, a set of our aims that is around improving people's lives. Uh, so it's not just more clean energy, but also sustainable livelihood, uh, enhancing the well-being of the com of the societies uh, where we operate, also enhancing for biodiversity, reducing the amount of water, and 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 so on, like sustainable purchasing. Like the target of my team, uh, that is, is about creating a portfolio. Uh, of renewable energy of uh, of the size we mentioned before, in conjunction with all, with with all these other aims. So we don't go and invest on a scheme just for the sake of it, just because we think that it helps us to achieve our uh, our headline target. But it has to be um, effectively, you know, in line with all these other aims. And this is why th what makes our job extremely complicated because differently probably from many investor, uh, uh, investors that actually just aim for look at and, and what that one dimension when they invest it's probably um, profit versus you know the risk involved in that in that investment we look uh, across um, many 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 items to be precise about 20 aims that we keep tracking against as a company consistently and we report um, about about those to our to our investors uh, so I think um, the way the way that um, a, a, some a consumer uh, a citizen could look at this the aim of a big energy company should be uh, I think with big interest because obviously we are not just creating new energy but also shifting our energy production from um, relatively dirty. Um, source of energy uh, into a much much cleaner. So it means the impact that we are having on on on, uh, on the environment is far is far is far bigger than uh, any any newborn renewable renewable energy company because we are effectively shifting uh, the supply from one source to another. We are looking for uh, expanding this portfolio uh, across the uh, we're looking across the globe. Uh, we want a portfolio that is um, combined. Uh, the combination of various technologies. So we look at solar, wind, uh, offshore wind, and bioenergy. Um, we already have fairly strong portfolio with about seven gigawatts of offshore wind in development that we we didn't have um, two years ago. So it's pretty it's pretty new. We have uh, two gigawatts of installed capacity of wind far of, of wind energy in the U.S. at the moment. We have a portfolio of nine gigawatts of solar energy, uh, photovoltaic energy in, um, in the US. That is uh, a material opportunity for development. Uh, we, we are invested for, um, we're 50% of a big company that is uh, LightSource BP, 
that has already three uh, gigawatts of installed solar capacity and has a pipeline of an additional 17 uh, gigawatts of renewable energy. And we have a big position in, in, in biofuel generation with, uh, um, I don't know the exact figure, but I think it's about 100,000 uh, barrels a day of, bio, of biofuels. We have the biggest South American um, bioenergy company that is called Bank Bungie Bank, BP. Um, and uh, we want to grow these to 400,000 barrels a day uh, of bioenergy. Um, therefore, as you can see, we're looking across the spectrum. I haven't even mentioned what we're doing in the, in the, in, in the technology will enable uh, the, um, the growth of renewable energy. So we are in carbon capturing, we are in hydrogen, uh, we are in the digitization of the power network, uh, we are in um, digitization of the customer experience because we want to be an energy company that makes easy for customers to access clean energy. Uh, at the moment, I think it's very difficult. Uh, I don't think really many users have a say on the on the origin of their of the of the power. Um, I think we want to work on this and to make it you know, as seamless as easy for anyone to access uh, affordable clean energy and there is a lot of work that is is being done this day these days um, through uh, inorganic investments organic development venturing incubation of new ideas we are really working you know hard and 360 degrees in order to find you know, the technologies that will uh, will eventually emerge and will allow us to give renewable energy that preeminent role that they, they, they need to have in the in the future energy system Mm. I mean, it sounds it sounds like BP is um, is heavily invested in the in the process. I mean, you mentioned there, for example, um, that w there's a, an ongoing project uh, of wind to generate. Um, I think you said seven seven gigawatts. Uh, I mean, just to give our listeners an idea, uh, in terms of investment, uh, roughly, um, what is the dimension of that project in terms of cost? Well, it's uh, it's huge. Um, so I think we we can actually probably refer to uh, so that's a pipeline of uh, of solar. So it will be developed over uh, many 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 years, uh, uh, and 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 the, the cost of development of solar per uh, per gigawatt is um, lower than other technologies like um, offshore wind, for example. Uh, but if you look at large offshore wind projects we can we can think of uh, a very high cost of development that can go from um, the likes of I would say um, four million dollars per mega megawatt hour to places like Japan where it can cost up to uh, nine 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 million dollars per megawatt hour to develop Okay, so still, still. So if you look, uh, if you look at technology. one gig, if you look at one gig, uh, we are talking investments of billions, um, like the, yes. the likes of um, all uh, oil and gas offshore projects. So significant amount of capital to be deployed. Yes. Can you can you see uh, renewables becoming BP's core business at some point in the future? I think renewables is increasingly. Uh, a core business of BP. Um, the way we see BP, however, is not a renewable energy company, but uh, an integrated energy company. So it's part of the equation. We don't think that renewables alone at the moment can satisfy the needs uh, of people uh, for heating, for transportation, for, uh, for power. 
so we need to have a portfolio that is much broader than that and we'll keep that keep adapting it adapting it um uh, as we aim mm. to decarbonize our portfolio and 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 as we we try to meet the the, the basic requirement of people for for energy everywhere they are uh, but i still i like i like to see bp uh, as a company that is not just a renewable energy company i think is, is much more than that and i think this is testified by the fact that we look at advanced mobility oh the light is back <laughs> we look at advanced mobility um, at ways of people move trying to uh, be part of this revolution on uh, electric vehicles and, and allow them to uh, move uh, freely and easily with um, with vehicles that are have a low environmental impact. We also look at new business models where people actually can share the vehicles. They don't need to, to own it. And therefore, I think just to say that BP is, 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 aims to be a renewable company probably would actually, actually wouldn't give credit to all this effort that is uh, being made around actually developing the, the, uh, an integrated energy company that is fit for future. Okay. Well, enough of BP. Uh, so besides your role there, um, you're also the founder of Advance. Uh, could you please tell us more about Advance? Uh, what is it and what does it do? Yeah, sure. I think this is one of the great opportunities of working in a forward-looking organization that is reinventing itself. So they gave a lot of power to uh, their employees to come up with ideas and develop them and test them and, and, and succeed or fail, you know, uh, and, and then move on. Uh, and I, I've been given the great opportunity to incubate an idea. Uh, it was one year ago. We have uh, a fantastic um, incubation program that in our business that is called BP Launchpad, where we take ideas from scratch and we try to grow them, and then eventually we scale them up in our in our scale-up factory. Um, so the idea was based on the fact that shipping uh, is a hard to decarbonize uh, environment, um, and at the same time plastic waste uh, is a big problem to deal with. Mm. Uh, so I thought we might com combine the excess of plastic waste with the demand for uh, shipping fuel that is cleaner, that is zero sulfur, um, and that can be used with less harm for, for, for the environment. So um, putting these things together, I come up uh, for, uh, with a technology that uh, is able to transform the unrecyclable plastics into uh, into cleaner fuels uh, with the aim to then move uh, the technology bar even further and and try to um, produce not just fuels but also um, plastic feedstock so that you can you can achieve full circularity you can bring plastic back into plastic um, without any residue in the environment hmm. well sounds it sounds uh, really interesting. How how advanced are you uh, are you in in the process of uh, of getting that ball rolling? Is it are you operating already or yes? Well, yeah, we we have board? identified we have identified the the site for our pilot plant uh, that is in the eastern hemisphere, and um, we are actually now in, in, in we, we developed the, the the engineering and the design. And we are now in the in the permitting stage for getting everything placed and, and start the construction. Hopefully by the beginning of next year. Okay, right. Uh, well, we're almost coming coming up to the to the time that we'd set for a for our chat here. Um, I just have a couple more questions if, for you. Um, so, 
you you work for for BP and uh, you're also an engineer and uh, you've been involved in energy ge generation and now um, with uh, with advanced you're also uh, involved in in technology to to uh, to recycle and uh, and clean waste um, I'm I'm assuming that in the midst of all of these activities and uh, throughout your your career you must have developed uh, a very strong awareness uh, about the impact that your industry has in the in the environment and, and and you probably know a lot more about it than than the average person um alessandro how worried should we all be about climate change we should be concerned i, I would say and i think I, I i do believe there is a correlation between these more violent climatic events um, and the impact we have on the environment. I don't think we should panic because I think if you panic, then you're not capable of react properly to uh, emergencies. I think you need to be uh, rational in the way you, you operate. And I think you need to keep in mind that uh, you, when you interact with, uh, uh, with, em with environment, with biodiversity, um, we, we, you know, with the rivers, uh, with the air, you always have some side effects. So you need to be very cautious in the way in the way you intervene, uh, and you need to be conscious also that everything you do has an impact on people' life that is m maybe linked to uh, more economic aspects that they have inevitably an impact on their on social aspect and therefore social stability. And you don't want to compromise social stability for the sake of another of, of another aspect. So everything, I think the concept of sustainability is very smart because actually, because actually it's based, you know, uh, all these aspects, you need to have environmental um, uh, harmony, but you also need to have economic and social stability in order for uh, yes. improving the environment. ESG, right? E ESG, environmental, uh, social and governance. Uh, so right. why I think I hear the people who say we are in a climate emergency, but I think it's not because you're a climate emergency that you need to create a social economic emergency. So you need to be cautious in the way uh, you operate. Planning for a, an energy transition that suits uh, our society uh, and trying to mitigate the negative effects of uh, pollution uh, on people's lives in the meanwhile, I think is the right approach. So uh, there is not going to be immediate transformation tomorrow, even if we invest, to, even if, if today we put all the resources we have in the world, and let's say, let's, let's put it on renewable energy. You won't be able to develop renewable energy at scale, not tomorrow, not in one year, not in 10 years. So there is a transition that is occurring. I think the governments uh, need to take uh, stock of the fact that there are some aspects that needs to be mitigated. And I refer to things like, um, like uh, geological instability, or uh, we are thinking of flooding, floodings, or we are thinking of more violent um, effects of uh, temperature on, on nature, and therefore you 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 will have incre increasing amount of uh, big fires. Um, so I, I guess these are the things where we need to think. We need to invest in the medium term to mitigate the effects of uh, climate change while we develop a new energy system. And there are lots of resources that are going also in that, in that, um, in that direction. And it has to be a partnership between public and private. It can't be, so the private alone cannot do much um, because the private always respond to the shareholders. Shareholders 
very often focus on dividends. So uh, I think one of the most welcome changes um, that actually supporting uh, the effort of many private companies um, in developing new, new alternative energy is that investors have understood that they can't just focus on the bottom line. Uh, they need to be more environmentally conscious because if you just if you just focus on growth and the bottom line, there won't be future for any one of us. <laughs> so I think the fundamental aspects of co-living and co-sharing responsibility for um, the planet we are all living in finally has been understood by investors. And you know there is a new asset class uh, that is uh, ESG focused that uh, proposes potentially lower returns, but uh, I think. Uh, better societal environmental returns and therefore makes people feel inevitably better that is generating uh, a lot of interest and this is feeding the the, the renewable energy transition so um, I think it's very much about planning it's about keeping calm it's about cooperating mm. no that's true um, for example the the sovereign funds of uh, Norway uh, which is one of the largest uh, investment funds in the world, if not the largest. Um, if, despite Norway's uh, historical links to, to oil, um, they stopped investing in, in oil um, and, and uh, fossil fuel related assets uh, a few years back. And that, in some ways, at least force the hands of uh, very large oil companies like BP, Shell, Total to to maybe have have a different uh, a different view, and then other other shareholders, large shareholders and large investors also um, also adopted a similar a similar stance. So so I do understand exactly where you're coming from. Um, it's all good to talk about uh, the impact that climate change will have. Uh, and for example, if, I don't know, if 70% uh, of Vietnam gets flooded, there will be a, uh, a climate, uh, a, a refugee crisis linked to climate, for example. But also if you, if you go too fast or if you do it in a non-sustainable way, the transition can also um, generate many uh, casualties, economic casualties, uh, and and have an equally negative impact. So I think those words that you you share there they really resonate with me. Uh, we need we need to have a, a global approach to this, and we need to give everything the correct weight, and and not just focus on the flavor of the week, which is what people talk. Uh, because that's at the top of the media agenda. So it's uh, now it's been really useful, really useful talking to you, Alessandro. Um, very interesting views there. It was a pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your views with uh, with me and uh, and with our listeners. Thank you very much, Ricardo. Really, I really enjoyed it, and uh, I also thank all the listeners and the viewers of this podcast. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Alessandro Antonioli. Traders Horizon will be back soon with another guest. If you enjoy the show, do subscribe and share it with your friends. My name is Ricardo Evangelista. I hope you all have a great weekend. You've been listening to Traders Horizon, a podcast produced by Active Trades and presented by Ricardo Evangelista.